We'll be looking at Acts chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 19, and we're going to go all the way through verse 30. That's Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. And this morning, when we open up and we read this in just a moment, we're going to really just be looking at this moment um, in the early church's life where we see an example of church planting. And um, that's important for various different reasons, but it's really significant for us because we are a church plant, not in the early church, but in the modern church. And uh, just a, a brief history there, just to remind some and maybe new information, new information to others, is that in February of last year, the last week of February specifically, we met for the very first time as a core group. And a month prior to that, we met as two interest meetings. And then in April of last year, we started meeting as a core group in my home at 3 o'clock on Sundays. And we did that all the way up until September. And we did various things within that time period. But in September, September, we launched as a church. And though we've launched as a church, we really aren't um, at a phase where in church planning, they say you should launch as a church. We did it basically uh, because we believe there are certain things a church should have. And to operate as a church plant, we can't have those until we're an actual church. And so we are a church plant in the first year of its existence. And in that, as I mentioned last week, as we looked at Psalms, uh, not Psalms, but Acts chapter 11, 1 through uh, 18, is that we don't have everything figured out yet. Um, but the reality of it this morning is what we're going to see in the early church is that church planning is something that was a practice of the uh, early church and I would argue should still be a practice for us today. So much so that as we were drafting up our information here at Redeemer Church, we have our mission and our core values, but we also have uh, our vision and really where we would like to see ourselves at one point at some point in the future, if that be uh, a year in or five years in or 10 years in, we're trusting God's leadership there. And in that vision statement, we have one specifically on church planning that I wanted to read before we get to this text, because this is what we're going to be looking at this morning. And it says this. This isn't scripture. This is our vision that is on my phone. It says, as we at Redeemer grow and progress as a church, our desire will be to be involved in planting churches in three ways. First, it is to identify, equip, and send out church planners to plant churches domestically and internationally. That means simply to those who are a part of us, if God is calling them uh, inwardly and we outwardly see God is doing so, we would send them out to do these things. Secondly, to support other churches or church planners directly through prayer, missions, efforts, and financially. What I'm going to argue for this morning in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, is we see that put into practice by the church in Jerusalem. And then our third one is one that's specific to us because we are a Southern Baptist church. It says this, we will support church planning by providing financial support to NAM, uh, North American Mission Board, International Mission Board, Southern Baptist Convention. This enables Redeemer Church to support church planning efforts in Mississippi, throughout North America, and the ends of the earth. The desire to fulfill these efforts is due to a biblical conclusion that sharing the gospel and making disciples results in the need for strong biblical churches. And this morning, we're going to see that conclusion come to be the case. The desire to fulfill this effort is due to biblical conclusion that sharing the gospel and making disciples result 
in the need for strong biblical churches. And in Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30, we're going to see exactly that. So let's pray and then we will read the scripture together. Father, we love you and we thank you. God, I pray now that as we approach your word, we would do so in a clear understanding. This is your word to us. God, this is a historical moment in the life of the early church. But Father, you have preserved it in scripture so that we can reflect upon it. And so my prayer now, as it is throughout the entire book of Acts, is that we may not see this completely as prescriptive, but we would see it as descriptive. And as we look at it that way, Father, we would ask ourselves clear ways in which this applies to our lives as individuals, but also the life of Redeemer Church. We love you and we thank you. Be with me as I expose your word in your son's holy name. Amen. One of our practices here at Redeemer is to preach verse by verse through Scripture. We're going to take a break from that in two weeks. Um, but this week we're continuing in the book of Acts and we're picking up where we let off. And it says this in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Syria, who coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great multitude who believed turned to the Lord. The report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas in to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great man, many people who were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarshish to look uh, for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught great many people. And Antioch, for disciples, were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And on them was an of, and one of them named Agapus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Gladius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this morning, we see a lot going on in this set of scripture. If I was going to break it down for us this morning, and as I will, we're going to look at it in three sections. We're going to look at 19 through 21. We're going to look at 22 through 26, and then we're going to look at 27 through 30. But as we look at 27 through 30, we're also going to jump ahead to chapter 13, and we're going to look at a few verses there. Okay, but before I get into any of that, I just want to say that normally I would have like a title or sermon points and all that, but I just couldn't find the words for this. So I'm going to make my way through it, and we're going to do our best here. But in, in this, I want to give us some background of what's going on here, starting in verse 1. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. When you look at chapter 8, it's not on the screen, but if you have your word with you, you can turn with me. Chapter 8, 
says, and Saul approved his execution. So this was before Saul's conversion. The same Saul that we see in chapter 11, verses 23 on, is the Saul that was the one that helped uh, facilitate the persecution and murder of Stephen. That he, uh, he agreed and he approved of this execution. But as we saw pre, in between chapter 8 and chapter 11, is that God revealed himself through Christ on the road to Damascus and Paul was miraculously saved, not only through that vision, but also the efforts of a man named Ananias that was praying over him. But look at what it goes on to say in chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose a great day of great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judah and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, I don't know about you, but when I initially read this, I may take it as they, they see this persecution of Stephen. And as they see Stephen being persecuted, they become very fearful and being fearful for their lives. So then they then leave. But I don't believe that's what's going on here. Look at verse four of chapter eight. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. But then also when you look at chapter 11, verse 19, it says, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So when they were scattered, they were scattered apart throughout all of this Judean area. But they weren't going in fear. They were going because God was sovereignly leading them to different locations through the persecution of Stephen. And as they went, they were proclaiming the gospel. If they were really that afraid of the death that could come to them, they would quit sharing the gospel. They don't do that. So what I'm going to argue here in the first three verses of chapter 19, verses 19 through 30, 11, 19 through 30, is that these people are being sent out by the church of Jerusalem. And as they're being sent out by the church of Jerusalem, we saw Philip proclaiming the gospel in Samaria. But now we are introduced to these individuals that made it to Antioch that would eventually make it uh, that, that would make it to Cyprus that would then make it to Antioch. And as they're going about, they're being sent out from Jerusalem. And as they're going out from Jerusalem, they're preaching the word of God. This is significant. Because what we see going on here is the proclamation of the gospel in midst of the reality of persecution and death being the outcome for them. So that's where we are at in chapter 1119. See, Luke's not writing Acts completely in chronological order of the early church. Now he's making a connection back to chapter 8 because he's about to unfold some things that are going on almost simultaneously. Not verses 20 on, but verse 19 was going on at the same time period as chapter 8 when Philip is going throughout all of these other regions. So when you get to verse 20, Says there were some men, some of them, men of Cyprus and Sunia, who came to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists also. So they're proclaiming the gospel. These people make it to Cyprus and Sunia, but then after being there for some time, we don't know how long, they then decide to go to Antioch. Now, Antioch is very significant. 
The reason why Antioch is significant, um, really just to explain it this way, is uh, Josephus was, was a historian of, uh, in, in the early uh, Roman Empire era, after the, around the same time period. He explains um, Antioch as this. He says it's the third among the cities of the Roman world after Rome and Alexandria was a great strategic importance for early Christians. See, Antioch was not by accident. Antioch was the third largest and most significant cities within the Roman Empire. But what we also see going on here was even before the scattering of these individuals, Jews had been in this area. It's another reference to him says, For our purpose, it is crucial to note that Jews had played a part in the city from the earliest days. There was a considerable and well-established Jewish community in Antioch in the middle of the first century. In revealing the remark, uh, remarks that Josephus tells us that the proselytes to Judaism were especially abundant in the city. What that means, very plain and simple, is that in Antioch, there was a lot of Jewish individuals that were there before the crucifixion of Christ. And there were some there before these people from Cyprus and, Antioch, and Cyprus made it there. And so what it says here is that when they make it to Antioch, what is the first thing they do is they spoke to the Hellenists. Speaking of Jewish speaking Jewish individuals that had converted to Christianity. And so we see in 19, they're only focusing on the Jews because this is early on in the church's life. And then in verse 20, we see the first thing they do is speak to the Hellenists. But it says also preaching the Lord Jesus. Why is that phrase significant? Well, what we looked at in chapter 10 and 11 is essentially that the gospel is for all who would believe. But simultaneously, we see God doing something in the life of these men from Cyprus and Samaria, and they're preaching the Lord Jesus. Why is that phrase important? I'm going to look back at chapter 8, verse 4. It says, in chapter 8, verse 4, is when Philip is going to Samaria. And just so as to understand the context here, when Philip goes to Samaria, he's preaching the gospel to the Jews because it is first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. It's not yet to the Gentiles. He's preaching the gospel to the Jews in Samaria. And this is what the phrase is here. Now they were scattered about when about preaching the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, the Christ is a way of saying that Jesus is the Messiah. But then when you look at chapter 11 and verse 20, you, says, you see this phrase, preaching the Lord Jesus. Not Jesus is Messiah, but Jesus is Lord. And why would that be significant in the third most great city in the Roman Empire? It's because the Lord is a phrase they would have known very, very well. What we see going on here in verse 19 and 20, well, really verse 20, is that these men that are unnamed, ordinary men, are contextualizing the gospel to the Gentiles of Antioch. And he's proclaiming to them that Jesus is Lord. That Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And what is the outcome there? And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them who believed turned to the Lord. 
that they arrive there, they first go to the Hellenists, and then they begin to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile, proclaiming that Jesus is his Lord. And what happens is that these individuals are saved. But why are they saved and how are they saved and what are they saved from is something that I think is utmost importance for us to understand. Because the reality is us in Christendom can use the phrase saved so often as if it's a misnomer that everyone understands. And that as we proclaim the gospel to them, we can ask the question, do you want to be saved? But to many people, that means nothing. Unless we rightly understand that we have a creator, a God that has made us, that owns us, that we're dependent upon and that we're accountable to because he is perfect and he is holy and he is righteous and he is a judge of sinners that we cannot understand our need to be saved. See, God is our creator. God is holy, meaning he is without error. He is without fault. He has not done nothing bad. And God is righteous, which means he has to judge those who have done bad. And the reality is, just like our forefathers, Adam and Eve, we have all sinned. As we read in Isaiah this morning, with the law abound, we abound in sin. We were in holes deep into our sin. That we do things that are contrary to the law of God. We sin, we steal, we cheat, we lie. We do various other things that are against who God is. And because of that, we are deserving of the wrath of God. This is where all people stand. Unless Christ has done something to change that. Unless we come to the realization that Jesus is not only Messiah, but he is Lord. And he is the one that can redeem and save us from our sins because he is the one who conquered our sins. That he took on the wrath of God when he was nailed to a cross, when he poured out his spirit, and when he was laid into a tomb and rose again, defeating it all. We can now believe and trust in him. We can now put our faith in that Jesus to save us from all the wrong things we have done because we have no other hope. This is what these people believed in. They believed that Jesus was Lord, that their hope wasn't in Caesar. Their hope wasn't in their family. Their hope wasn't in anything else. Their hope was in this Jesus who was Lord. This is a very significant moment because this is a moment where these individuals that grew up in pagan backgrounds believing now that a singular individual was where their hope could be laid. And what is the outcome of them trusting in Jesus? It's what we're going to explore when we get to 27 through 30. But in between here and there, I want to look at how the church responded to this in Jerusalem. So to maybe put that in a nice little bow, we see these unnamed men from Cyprus and Sinaria that go down to Antioch and they begin to preach the gospel to the Hellenists first and then to the Gentile. And when this happens, people's lives are transformed because it's a transforming message. And then in verse 22, it says, The report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
They hear about this. Just like every other moment throughout all of the book of Acts where they send Peter to go out. They send Barnabas this time. Who is Barnabas? Barnabas is one of the, the seven that was chosen to be a disciples. Barnabas was the one that stood up for Paul after he stood up for Saul after he was converted and said, I know he was once this, but now he was this. Barnabas is the one that is known as the son of the encourager. So Barnabas goes down to Antioch. Verse 23, it says, And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. He saw the fruit of God. He saw the work of God on the life of the Hellenists and the Gentile. He saw what God was doing and he was glad. But not only was he glad, he didn't come there and he didn't correct them of any practices. He then says, and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He came down to this group of new believers and he encouraged them just like his name meant. He encouraged them to be steadfast, to depend upon Christ, to trust in him and him alone, to hold fast. And then in verse 24, Luke gives us another note of who Barnabas is. And I don't want to just skip over it, so I want to read it. It says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This Barnabas was a good dude, is what he's saying here. And we've seen that throughout this entire story of who Barnabas is. And Barnabas does not go away. We're going to see him throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Barnabas is a significant part in Paul's ministry. So Barnabas is this good guy. But what we see in verse 25 is this role that is about to enter into this. It says, so Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for Saul. Now remember, Saul was this individual that was killing Christians. And after he was killing Christians, he was on his way to Damascus to take Christians out of the, the synagogues and the temples and all of, all of those things and to take them back to Jerusalem so that they could be rightly judged by the Jewish court of law so that they could be condemned of heresy and all of those things. But on the way, Jesus reveals himself to him. He blinds him. He goes into Damascus for about a three-day span where he's blind in this random guy's house. And he, God reveals a vision to him and a vision to Ananias and tells Ananias to go pray over him. And as Ananias goes and prays over him, we see this radical moment in which Paul's life is transformed. That he begins to proclaim the gospel there. And then for about three years, he's proclaiming the gospel in this particular area before he comes to Jerusalem. And when he comes to Jerusalem, he's proclaiming the gospel to his original friends. The party in which he dealt with. The individuals whom he was a part of when he was killing Christians. And what began to happen to him was the same thing he was doing to Stephen. They began to, they began to want to persecute him and to kill him. And so what did the church do? of Church of Jerusalem. They say, essentially, go to Tarsus, go to Tarsus. And so what we know about Saul is we don't know what happens in between this time in Tarsus and this time that he's about to come up to Antioch. But what we know is that he's still there, that he comes to Antioch with Barnabas. In verse 26, he says, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And what happens when he brought him to Antioch is that for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We're going to get to the first called Christians in just a moment. 
But when Paul and Barnabas together make it back to Antioch, what does it say that they do? For a whole year, they met with the church. The church of Antioch. They're meeting with them. They're teaching them. They're pouring into them. That people began, continued to come to Christ in salvation. And they were being made disciples. See, earlier I read in our mission statement that when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed throughout the world, then it arises the need for churches because this is our biblical conclusion. And that's exactly what we see going on here. These two, these unnamed men from Cyprus and Syria go to Antioch. They proclaim the gospel to the Jews. They proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And then what happens is they are now the church of Antioch. Is that as people will come to know Christ, they needed more churches in the world. So we see this formation of the church in Antioch. And how was it formed? It formed by the proclamation of the gospel. So Paul and Barnabas are hanging out in Antioch for a year. They say they're a little bit longer than that, but they leave for a period of time. They hang out here for a year. And in this year span, they're teaching and pouring into the people of the church. They're evangelizing. I would say it this way, is that the growth of the church was so crucial that Barnabas needed someone else gifted to help him with this. The church needed someone like Saul to come in and be a part of it. But we see the church in chapter 13, when we get there, what we're going to see is the church was not dependent upon Barnabas and it was not dependent upon Paul or Saul because the church was Christ and Christ was going to provide for his church. So in all of this, what I want us to see first and foremost in 19 through 21 was the sending out of people to plant churches and proclaim the gospel throughout all of the world. But in that, the conclusion was this planting of a church in, in the city named Antioch, which, which was the third greatest city in the Roman Empire in this day and time. But in 27 through 30, and then we're going to jump to 13, we're going to see now the outcome of church planting in Antioch. And what I would argue here is something very similar to why our mission, uh, part of our vision is to plant churches. In verse 27, it says, Now in those days a prophet came down to Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agapus, Agapus stood and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Cleopas, Cleodus. All right, So Luke is mentioning that because it meant something to Theopolis, but it also helps us. Because what's going on here, and I don't want to spend too much time on this uh, prophet side of things, but there was certainly a case for God using prophets through the work of the Spirit in the early church on into the second century, and even arguably today to some extent or another. Uh, I don't think we see it as often, but we certainly see that God is doing what God wants to do through the work of the Spirit, and we shouldn't be people that push back too heavily against that. I think that sometimes that is abused and misused in modern church. But we see that this is a clear example of it in Scripture. So we have to acknowledge that as true. And specifically names this guy named Agapolis. That were foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. Now, all over the world, all over the world could be a loose terminology there of meaning all over the kingdom. Because in this day and time, Roman considered themselves the world. So it was either all over the world, it was only in the Roman Empire. I would argue that's probably only in the Roman Empire, okay? 
Um, but what we do know historically, it was there's some variables that would have attributed to the fact that this would have been the case. For example, uh, what we see in this, let me find my notes to make sure I can read this right. Uh, I did not make notes of that. I'm sorry. I'm just going to explain it from memory then. What we saw going on here, there's one or two possibilities or both of them are a possibility. So what we see is that they specifically collect money, as you read on in 28 through 30, and they send it to Jerusalem to be dispute, to, to be dispute uh, passed out to all of the churches in Judea. All right. So why is there a famine in this region is what I'm trying to answer here. And there's two possible answers. One is in Jerusalem, because they were still under the Levitical law, there would have been a time, a Sabbath year every seven years in the, the era of this time period. So it's a possibility that in Jerusalem that this was their seventh year time frame where they wouldn't have planted crops and they would have gave the land a rest. There's a possibility that is the case, but also this is around uh, A.D. 40 to A.D. 47, which because we know that because Claudius is the one that is in leadership here. And then during his reign, we also saw a moment where the Nile River flooded so much so that in the Egyptian empire that it, it caused them to have a late harvest. And what that late harvest did was it made, sure, made it to where the, the price went up in between the, the, when they would normally harvest. It would made the price go up in that time period. But also after they harvested all the food uh, after this flood, it was a smaller amount than they normally would have harvested in Egypt. So therefore, the demand went down. The demand went up and the product went down. Supply went down. There we go. So what's going on here is a possibility of two things, or even both of them, is that in this time period, there was certainly a famine that hit the land because of the, the, the flooding of the Nile River that made it to where they could not uh, collect enough crops, and Egypt then would have sold to all of the Roman Empire, or Jerusalem was in their seventh-year Sabbath, seventh Sabbath where they did not plant and harvest wheat and grain and all of those things. But historically, we actually find this uh, to be true, which is, I think, very significant for us. Because in all reality, what we know is that Scripture is true, and this is just a proof text for it. But also, we, we see in history, it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We see that in history as well. So Luke, as a true historian here, is giving us some nitbits of information that helps us not only see where this, at is, this is at in, in human history, but we also see where it's at in spiritual history. So, long story short with that, as a famine hits, the people are in need. And look how the church responds in, responds in verse 29 through 30. It says, so the disciples determined, or as we could say, the Christians determined, because we just saw that they're first known as that in Antioch, that everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So what we see going on here is they see this famine is about to hit. They, they're trusting that this prophet is from the Spirit um, and the, from the Lord. And so they begin to collect money given freely from individuals ability, to their ability. They send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So how do they dispute, distribute that money in Judea? In verse 30, Then they did so sending, the elder, sending to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
So Barnabas and Saul go to Jerusalem. They give the money to the elders there. And in that, they would distribute it to those in Judea when the need arose. Why is that significant, though? It's because in Jerusalem is where many of these people came. But not only these people, but Gentiles. So we see the upside down nature of the gospel here. It's that those who would have initially been rejected by the love of God and the the gospel of Jesus are now not only accepted into the kingdom of God, they are now contributing to the church and which are now still pushing back against the salvation of the Gentiles. As I said last week, the early church did not have everything figured out. But what we see in this is an effort of little seed churches contributing and aiding and helping one another. That this church plant in Antioch had been established to the point to where they could pour back into their mother church. Now, I told you we're going to look at part of Acts 13. And so let's skip over there. It says, And now there were in the church of Antioch. I'm going to pause there. Because we're going to preach chapter 12 next week. And we're going to take a break from chapter 12 to chapter 13. That's going to be a few months in span. And in that few months in span, we're going to preach through various different things. But the reason why we're stopping at the end of 12 and not stopping anywhere else in all of this is because now we're seeing this transitioning out of the church of Jerusalem to the church of Antioch. And so we see this formation of the church in chapter 11. And now we see that now there was a church at Antioch the prophets and the teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Sina, so we know one of the guys that was from there, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. So these individuals that made up the leadership of the church of Antioch, they're gathered together. Verse 20, uh, verse 2, I mean, says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid on hands on them and they sent them out. And this is where we begin the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. Why am I mentioning that here, though? It's because what we see in this is that Jerusalem, Church of Jerusalem, sends out individuals to go throughout the regions proclaiming the gospel. The natural conclusion was those individuals that got saved formed a church. And in forming a church, what we saw was eventually another church from these regions in uh, Cyprus and uh, Sinaria go to Antioch and they begin to proclaim the gospel there. And in proclaiming the gospel there, we see this church start in Antioch. And then we saw Antioch contribute back to the church of Jerusalem. But not only that, in verse 13, we see them, then, them now setting aside Barnabas and Saul for the mission of evangelism and church planning. God was doing something through the church of Antioch. But it started many years before in the persecution of Stephen. See, God is sovereignly working out all of his plan throughout the early church. And what I want us to see in that is two things. First, very simply, we cannot completely understand what God is doing in our lives. 
or in the life of the people that make up Redeemer. The second thing is in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3, in a different context, of course, but this is where this is where we at Redeemer come to the conclusion that we should be commissioning off Air Force individuals when they move throughout the world, as we did for Tim, as we did for Josh, as we one day would do for you three and others. Because though you guys are being sent by the United States Air Force throughout the world, God is the one sovereignly designing where you will go and what you would do and how you will be his witness there. This is why in just a few weeks we're going to commission David, though he's going to serve as an elder here, we're going to commission him to serve here. This is why in our vision, our desire is to plant churches, not to make a name for Redeemer or for James or any other elders that make up this church at some point, but because when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, there is a need for biblical churches. Some locations, there's biblical churches that are accomplishing the same mission, so there's a partnership there. Some churches, there's not biblical per- churches doing the same mission, and so therefore they either need to, they need to either be a part of that church to fulfill that mission in a different way through an established church, or they need to plan a church to be able to fulfill that mission. Or sometimes there's just not a biblical church at all, and there needs to be a church planted. But in all of this, we see a lot of why Redeemer exists. And it's not because this is a prescriptive, you have to do it this way. Uh, this is because it's a descriptive that we can look at this and we can learn from this and we can say these are good principles to put in place as a church. And because of that, I want to go back and I want to look at a few things that I think are good principles for us as we kind of think through application this morning. First and foremost is, and I said this just a moment ago, we don't know what life's going to bring. We should be people that have trusted in Jesus, that proclaim the gospel wherever we go. If it be our jobs, if it be in our families, if it be in moving, if it be wherever we be, this is a desire and a calling on our lives to proclaim the gospel. But also we see here is the need for proclaiming the gospel is that there's people that have not yet come to know him. Look at verse 21. It says, And then the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. We proclaim the gospel because the gospel needs to penetrate the lives of unbelievers that have not yet trusted in them because their only hope in life and death is our only hope in life and death. And that is that is that we are not our own, but we belong to God, and he desires to save and redeem them. But also just look at the partnership between churches. This should be a reminder to us to pray for churches in our area or in the world that God would rightly use them, proclaim the gospel, even churches that we may not agree with 100%. This is also why we have multiple partner churches. We have Startful Community Church. We have um, Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport. We have a community of Grace, community of grace in Aberdeen. We have Academy Baptist in Vernon. This is why this is necessary. It's because we're not at mission alone. We're at mission together with other churches seeking to accomplish the same thing. And finally, this is why we should be proactively praying 
for those who are a part of us that would not always be a part of us. That God would sovereignly prepare them as well as those that they will soon be around to proclaim the gospel. What I mean by that is one day, I'm going to use you two as an example, okay? If that's okay with you guys. Noah and Molly, you've got about a year left here, year and a half, give or take. And they're starting the process of looking at where to go. And so I would encourage you as a church to pray for them, where God would send them, what plane did they fly, and why they should be motivated to fly said plane and go to said place. That God would begin to use this to prepare them to go certain places, to proclaim the gospel to certain people, to meet new people, to, pro- to share the gospel, to make disciples and rest in Christ. This is why we exist as a church that are trying to reach the military community is because we see, in, we see evidence of God doing something here. And all we are doing is getting on the, tr- the train with him and going along for the ride. And so I think this text here, overall, I just want us to see as evidence of planting churches in the, new church, in the early church. But I want it to be an encouragement to us as a church plant. One, there's going to be a moment, and prayerfully, that we'll be well established to where we can plant other churches. But in the in-between time, the reality is we have men and women that will be a part of us that God will send out. And in doing so, we can equip them with the gospel and disciple them and pour into them so that they can reach where they are now but where they will be in the future. And for us who call Columbus or the surrounding areas our home, that we buy into that with all that we are, and that's what we live for, to make disciples of the individuals that may be coming in and out, but also for those who are here and now. In all of this, I want us to land and focus on one last thing, and then Mike is going to come. Verse 21. I've referenced this a lot, but I want to reference the first section. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Church, individuals, there's nothing, nothing that we can do outside of the hand and the power of God being on our side. So as we seek to proclaim the gospel, make disciples, we also rest in Christ. Because he is the one that redeems and saves through the work of the Spirit. He is the one that empowers us to be his witnesses. And he is the one that we can only trust in, not only to save us, but to use us for his mission of reaching Columbus, reaching the W, and reaching the Air Force. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. God, we pray now that as we... Uh, go into a time of singing one last time that you would be lifted up and glorified and that we would be encouraged. We love you and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.